Leaders face a lot of tough situations. We deal with a lot of stress. And over time, and sometimes over years, that wears on us. Today, how to break the funk and take practical action to restore your happiness. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 334. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. One of the words that comes up for a lot of us, if not in our daily conversations, certainly in our thinking, is happiness. How do we become a happier person? How do we capture the motivation that so many of us have to want to lead a happy life? And how do we create that for others? Today's guest is someone who really is going to challenge us. I know he's already challenged me on thinking about happiness in a real practical way and to also at the same time challenge some of the assumptions that many of us have about how to lead a happy life and to be happy in the workplace. I am thrilled to welcome Neil Pasricha to the show today. He is a New York Times bestselling author of The Happiness Equation and the Book of Awesome series, which has been published in 10 countries, spent over five years on bestseller lists, and sold over a million copies. After 10 years heading leadership development at Walmart, he now serves as the director of the Institute for Global Happiness. He has dedicated the past 15 years of his life to developing others, creating global programs inside the world's largest companies, and speaking to hundreds of thousands of people around the globe. Neil, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. So I happened across a report in your work, I think it was in Fortune magazine, that says the two most dangerous years of our lives are the year we're born and the year we retire. (laughs) So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about this because retirement is the promised land, right? It's where so many of us think that we get to the point where we really start to be happy. What is it that maybe we haven't really uh, made peace with or haven't haven't really processed the right way? Retirement is a complete fallacy. It, it really is. It's a it's a it's a made up dreamland. And the reason I say that. Is because first of all, just to unpack for your listeners, why is it the most dangerous years of your your life after the year you're born? Because instances of depression, instances of suicide, instances of anxiety, all the things I was just talking about, they go up, they spike in the year you retire. Um, sometimes I share the story of my favorite high school guidance counselor, who was just a joy in our high school and helped the high-achieving kids feel less stressed and the low-achieving kids feel like they could do anything they wanted to. And then we had mandatory retirement. So age 65, he was kicked out of the workforce by the government and moved on to old age pension. And two weeks later, two weeks later, he had a heart attack and he died. And whenever I tell that story of my high school guidance counselor, you know what? People start nodding their heads. They start saying, my brother-in-law was retired and he had a heart attack. Or, you know, um, my my uncle were uh, retired and he has never been happy since. And so I think retirement's a big problem right now. It's a big problem right now in society. And I looked at the history of it. First of all, we got to remember retirement's new. It's a brand new thing. We only invented it 100 years ago. It came about in Germany when Chancellor Otto von Bismarck declared in an era when there was 20% youth unemployment. He said, you know what? If you're 65 years old and you're infirm, 
so you're not doing too well anyway, health-wise, we'll pay you a little bit of money if you want to, to leave the workforce. Mm. Well, 100 years ago in Germany, the average lifespan was 67. And he made 65 the arbitrary world standard, which the rest of us adopted. So we copied this number 65 for no reason. Since then, the last 100 years, we've tried to reduce that age, you know, freedom 55 and get up, and people retire when they're 45 and all this stuff. And people live till like they're 80, 90, 100 now. So we've created like a, a, a 40, 50 year vacuum into which goes this unknown world of like, do I play golf every day in Arizona or what am I going to do? And so when I look around the country when I, and I study happiness, it's something I'm very passionate about. I look around the country, I stumble upon a National Geographic study that says, hey, one of the happiest and healthiest societies in the world is in Okinawa, Japan. And in Okinawa, Japan, they live seven years longer than Americans, which is a lot, like an average of seven extra years of life. We think of ourselves in North America as having great lifespans. We do, but they have seven years more. And they don't even have a word in their culture for retirement. They have a different word. And that word is one I'd love to leave with your listeners. It's called ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, which roughly translates as the reason you get out of bed in the morning. So rather than aim towards retirement, I always tell people, you just got to aim towards having an ikigai, having something to get up for, having a purpose. So much of our society is built on this notion of, you you know, we should stop working as soon as possible and save up money. How do you get past the like the starting point of like changing people's minds on this? Because I, I would imagine you get quite a bit of pushback. I do. And I, I'll tell you one big area of passion for me right now, and one that I'm talking to corporate audiences about a lot, is the concept of a word called demotion. Okay. It's a taboo word. We all want to talk about promotions going up in the workforce, having a bigger job title, having a larger team, making more money, buying a second house on a lake. But the word demotion sounds bad, right? It sounds bad in most corporations. It sounds like you're going down. You are doing less. You suck. And rather than take a demotion as an HR person, I know that most people, given the option of quitting with the package or taking a demotion, most of them, from an ego point of view, from a self-preservation, self point of view, they take the package because they'd rather leave the company altogether than suddenly be a manager when all their friends are all directors or, or suddenly be an individual contributor when they were a manager. So what I'm trying to do is reduce the stigma of the word demotion and talk about careers more as storylines as opposed to climbing a mountain be more of a pathway. And you and I both know in, in most communities that are healthy, the people who are older do less. They do work, they share stories, they spread wisdom, they take care of younger people, they mentor, whatever, but they do less, that's fine. But companies, if you're listening, don't fire those people, demote them positively, positively demote them, reduce the stigma of the word demotion. That to me is one of the biggest things we can do as, corp as, as corporations and people inside corporations is trying to reduce the word of that. And how do you do that? How do you reduce the stigma? You talk about them. You talk about them positively. You talk about people who have done them and talk about and celebrate those people. You talk about demotions as a positive experience. You share your own demotion. Because we all have them. They're, you can't see them on our resumes or our LinkedIn profiles. So we hide them. We hide them like crazy. We don't want anyone to see them. Mm. But we've all experienced going down 
We've all experienced going down. Nobody's career is the perfect LinkedIn profile of going up, 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 up. No, no, no. Let's So let's take the stigma off and talk about that because that enables a healthier conversation about not retiring because then you can just go down. You don't have to get kicked out. I'm so curious. Have you seen firms who have set up healthy expectations around that for their workforces and are starting to do that with success? You know what's funny is I see it in sports. Okay, that's, I know it sounds so funny, but when you look at like backup quarterbacks in the NFL, for example, who are they? Well, half of them are up and coming young kids, and the other half are the old guy who's been on eight teams, right? And same with like the backup catcher on a baseball team. And I'm from Toronto, so I'm a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, and we have a great player named Jose Batista. You know, his salary goes up. And then now, you know, he's, his, his contract expires, and if he wants to keep playing, his salary will probably go down. And the player will keep playing for a lower salary because they're on the tail end of their career. That, so I see it kind of in sports a little bit, but I have not seen it much in corporations. That's why I'm trying to address it. It's a really fascinating line of thought because so often, in fact, we just fielded a question recently on one of our Q&A shows about talking with someone about retirement and how to have that conversation with an employee. And so often the conversation is framed around when are you going to leave and you know what are you doing next after you leave but there's rarely I can't, i'm trying to think of a time that i've known of a leader or an executive to be having the conversation about how do we change your role so that it you're still contributing but maybe we look for a different way to do this different format allow for more flexibility et cetera, et cetera. the same things you're saying Exactly. And and part-time roles, half-day roles. We've done it where we've we've let people go and then hired them back as, as temporary consultants, which is kind of like a demotion because they're making less money, but we have their presence and their their contribution. I'll also add that it's a thorny issue because of compensation. So we often don't pay market rates inside companies, right? People know that they have to leave the company and get a job. And have you ever heard people say, I got to leave the company, go somewhere else to get to get what I deserve? Oh, sure. Right, all the time, rather than suffer from my like you know annual two percent raise that I have to get at this company is the only way to go up. Well, same with the demotion conversation. We the the money side of it has to corroborate. So we have to get better at compensation. We have to get better at paying people what they're worth today, asking if they got a job elsewhere what they'd get, and similarly on their way down. And as we get more comfortable with that, paying them less. And we're not comfortable with that right now. We we think oh the package is too big, so fire the guy. That's what we think. It's a terrible line of thinking, but that's the thought inside a company. I love that you challenge people in the book on retirement, and it, it, it's your thinking and a few other people have really gotten me thinking differently about how I frame my work now and also thinking about the future. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about wealth, too. I mean, speaking about retirement, because this goes hand in hand, you quote Epictetus in your book who said, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And that's not really aligned with our, at least Western society view of things. So I'm kind of curious, like, I, I love the idea of that quote. How do we execute on it? How can we have fewer wants in a, in a society that generally tells us we should be consuming more? It's a huge question. I want to share one story and then uh, a bit on neuroscience here. So the story I want to share is a famous story where Kurt Vonnegut, and Joseph Heller, two of the 20th century's most prominent novelists, right? You know, A Slaughterhouse-Five, A Catch-22, right? These big books everyone reads in high school. Um, they were going to a party for like a hedge fund billionaire, like outside of New York City. 
which is years ago. It's a story that Kurt Vonnegut shared. So they're going to this party, and Kurt Vonnegut says to Joseph Heller, hey, Joe, how do you feel about the fact that this guy made more money in like one year or, or even maybe probably one month than you did in your whole career? And you wrote one of the most important works of, of literature in the world. Like you wrote Catch-22. You invented a, f- a phrase that we all use. You are more important. And, and he said, Joseph Heller replied, ah, but I'll have something he will never have. And Kurt Vonnegut said, well, well what could that be? You, you know, He has more than you. And Joseph Heller replied, the knowledge that I have, enough. Mm. Enough. I have enough. That's all I need. And that's something that guy will never have. And so I think of it from a neuroscience point of view, we have 200,000-year-old machines in our skulls called the human brain. They've been around for 200,000 years. The genetics on them haven't changed that much. And for 199,900 of them, those machines have been programmed to do three things. Our brains are very good at these three things. Number one, look for problem. Number two, find problem. Number three, solve problem. That's what we do. We look for problems, we find problems, we solve problems. When you get your blood test back from your doctor, what do you look for? You don't look for every variable. You look for the cholesterol. You look for the one thing that's out of range. You focus on that. What do you do in your performance review at work? You look for the one piece of constructive feedback. The other stuff you just don't care about. You don't You don't even read it. You find the thing that they're saying is wrong. So in today's age and today's era of, of abundance, with endless, as I mentioned, opportunity, technology, travel, we have so much stuff. Lifespans are longer than ever before. We are still doing that. Our brains are still doing that. We are still looking for problems, finding problems, and solving problems. So even if you're a multimillionaire vice president listening to this right now at the top of your company with a nice big house, you're married, you've got kids, you've got a nice Tesla in your driveway or whatever – you might still feel that brain doing those things, looking for problem, finding problem, and solving problem. And the solution to that is a huge question of you recognizing that the goal of your life should be to be happy first, okay? Not to have happiness as a destination, but have it as a starting point. And that, that is the root of all my work, is helping people try to cultivate a positive mindset when they wake up. And let that carry them through their days and their weeks and their lives, rather than looking for that at the end of a journey. Yeah, and my sense that is a big part of this is what's going on externally versus what are we thinking internally. And what do you see is the challenge with looking at the external goals, the external indicators of success versus what you're articulating that that we want to be changing our thinking to? Well, I mean, the biggest problem with that is that you're never first. You know, you're never first. There's social media, which we are, most of us, addicted to. There's a great book I just read recently called Irresistible, written by Adam Alter of NYU, about how all these technologies are designed to addict us. And social media has three problems. Number one is, it's a psychological problem, which is you compare yourself endlessly. Even if you're eating a delicious homemade spaghetti at home on Sunday night with your family, someone's at an all-inclusive eating a pile of lobsters on Instagram. You know, you're, <laughs> right. you're never going to be first. That's the psychological problem. The second problem is physical. 
we're hurting our bodies. We're adding 60 pounds of pressure when we tilt our heads down to look at our cell phones. I went to a physio last year for my thumb because I couldn't literally move my thumb. And she said, all we do is thumbs now. People used to come in with arms and legs and knees, and now everyone's coming in because they got texting thumb. So the physical problem. And the third P is physiological. Okay, We can't sleep at night because when you look at a bright screen within an hour of bedtime, your brain doesn't produce as much melatonin. This is from new research from Australia. So like I said, there's a psychological problem of comparison. There's a physical problem of, you know, literally we're going to become hunchbacks. And there's a physiological problem, which is that our bodies are not producing the proper hormones to sleep when we look at bright screens. And so what I advocate people do is I also say there's three solutions to this this happy, this this big addiction we have now. And here's what they are. Number one, implement a no screens in the first or last hour of the day rule. For busy managers, like I know your listeners are, that's really hard. But we scramble our thoughts when we send an email before bed. We scramble our thoughts when we check email when we wake up. We don't take a step back and digest or process. So that's a big one. No screens first or last hour of the day. The second one is uh, it doesn't really matter where your cell phone is. Okay, Let's assume it's always in your pocket because the average person touches it 2,500 times a day now, and that's not a made-up number. That's a, a quotable statistic from D-Score Marketing Research. We touch our cell phones 2,500 times a day. Wow. And so it's not where your cell phone is. It's where your charger is. Plug your charger as far away from your bedroom as possible. The extra 20 seconds of work to go into your garage or basement to get your cell phone will disable you from doing it most of the time. And for those of you listening that say, oh, my cell phone is my alarm clock, I say, buy an alarm clock <laughs> from Amazon. They're $10. You know, just go back to the basics. Let's not use our cell phones anymore as our TV and our book and our alarm clock. It should really be out of the bedroom. And the plug, the location of the plug is really, is really the best way to control that. So I said there's three solutions. Number one, again, just to, just to say, is no screens first and last hour. Number two is uh, plug your phone in as far away from your bed. And number three is uh, change your device from a push device to a pull device. When you download an app, what's the first thing it asks you? Will you allow push notifications? Oh, the, yeah. first, the first thing the app wants to know right before it lets you use the thing is, can I just send you stuff? Can I please just send you stuff? And you're like, oh, well, I have to know my Uber driver is waiting outside. I got to know that my pizza is waiting at my front door, of course. So when you look at your cell phone screen, it has 11 alerts waiting for you at all time. It's a sports score. It's a seven text messages. It's blah, blah, blah. Put it in airplane mode all day. My phone is in airplane mode all day. And I only go out of it once or twice a day, receive the barrage, and go back in airplane mode. I switch my device from a push device to a pull device. And that makes all the difference because I'm no longer at the mercy of its alerts. I actually become the boss again. Yeah. And it, it is, there's so much that can be done. I mean, even those of us who have like kids and, and have to like be on alert for, you know, things happening at school or whatever, there's so much we can do to set up filters and, um, and to manage our lives better. And, and, and I'm conscious of, of thinking about that too, in the corporate space that you know you and I have both spent a lot of time in of people feeling like they can't do that as much that that okay my boss 
wants me to be responsive within the hour if something comes up. When you hear that from people, how do you how do you encourage them to take that first step to um to to be able to focus better and to not be interrupted constantly by what's going on in the rest of the world? Well, I have a great I have an I have a story and then a, a solution. The story is that for 4 years of my career, I worked directly for Dave Cheesewright, who some of your listeners may know was this president and CEO of Walmart International. I worked with him when he was CEO of Walmart Canada and I was his project manager. And so I got to know him really well. And I noticed that he didn't really do email, which is a pretty surprising thing for a leader in charge of 100,000 people that he didn't really do email. And I talked to him about it one day and he said, Neil, there's a problem with email. And it puts the burden of responsibility on the recipient. Almost nothing else in the world does that. The burden of responsibility is almost always on the giver, on the giver. But with an email, it's like I can just assign you work, and now it's the hot potato in your inbox. So he says, when I don't reply to emails, one of two things happens. Ninety-five percent of the time, the person never writes back to me. They invariably figure it out on their own, empower themselves, and learn how to make their own decisions. Five percent of the time. They forward the email at me again two or three times from their sent items. They're like, hey, are you on this? Hello, hello. And then I actually reply. But I make them do the work of sending it to me at least twice before I reply. And 95% of people never do that. As a result, I only get like five emails a day. And I was like, wait a minute. If the CEO – and I share the story in the happiness equation, which I know you just read. So I yeah. changed his name I changed his name a little bit and stuff like that because you know he's an active CEO. But I'm like, you know what? He He taught me that. And so when I was researching the happiness equation, I actually did a study with a best-selling author on productivity. And we did a study to try to figure out, well, how do we manage email? How do we, how do, we do this? And the, the net output of our study, like I said, I wanted to give you a story and then a solution. Here's the solution, is that the two best hours of the data check email are from 9 to 10 in the morning and from 4 to 5 p.m. So you are checking email for two full hours. Very few people can tell me with a straight face that that's not enough time to do your email. Like I'm giving you two hours a day of just email, 9 to 10 in the morning and 4 to 5 p.m. But what you do is you create for yourself a 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. email-free window while also allowing your coworkers and your boss the perception that you're always on. You see, you're still replying to their crazy late night 11 p.m. email the next morning, so they can't get upset about that. And their urgent, frantic noon hour email, well, you'll still get back to them at four. It's not like you're out of pocket. It's not like you're unplugged. If you're at a corporation where being present is is important, well, try this test. I'll call it the I'll call it the the 10 to 4 p.m. test, where you just book yourself in your calendar from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m and 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. to just do email. And then from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., you close Microsoft Outlook. You close Gmail. The apps no longer appear on your desktop. They are not on your phone. You have no email access. And watch as your productivity skyrockets. Your ability to do deep, conscious work and feel productive at the end of the day goes way up. And your happiness as a result. I've heard an email inbox described as a unorganized list of other people's priorities for you. And yet, of course, you know, we a lot of us do need to be responsive in organizations. Uh, and and I love that system. I'm just curious, like, so let's say you do that. You get you get down to the 10 to 4 workday and you're really off email. How does that help with happiness? 
Ah, well, our right now in society, our busyness, our busyness is getting in the way of our happiness. So I casually mentioned a few minutes ago that we touch our cell phones 2,500 times a day. What I haven't mentioned yet, but should be obvious, is that we're now on our cell phones, some studies say up to five hours a day. Now, in 2010, not that long ago, we were on our cell phones 18 minutes a day, just to show you how fast that number is growing. And so we are surrounded by dings and pings and and busyness. We know purpose drives happiness, or what I call ikigai. And if you're only doing the urgent tasks, you're never doing the important ones. That means when you go home at night, you're driving home, it's getting dark outside, your partner's got nice dinner cooking for you in the kitchen, you walk in the front door, they say, how was work? You say, great. And in your mind, you're thinking, but I don't even know what I did. Like, I don't even know what I did. And you kind of Flip open your laptop at night, and you, you see 210 emails in your sent items. And, and no wonder you don't know, because you haven't come up with an important task that you're going to get to. So for me, what I do, I'm going to give you my system on this, is I have developed a system for myself. It's called Two Minute Mornings. I, don't, I can send you one after, but I actually made a journal that's called Two Minute Mornings, just with these three questions. Every morning when I open my eyes... Before my kids start screaming, <laughs> I take two minutes and answer three things for myself every day. Number one is, I will let go of, then I am grateful for, and then I will focus on. That's it. Takes two minutes. I will let go of helps me crystallize and extricate, extricate an anxiety, which I wake up every morning. I'm worried about something. I'm comparing myself to another author. I'm... I'm, I'm I think my Instagram followers are low. I think I'm getting fat in my stomach. Like whatever it is, I just I just write it down. And it it makes it stop subconsciously floating in my mind all day. And there's great research around this, by the way. And we're on all these three points. They're all science-backed. I can share you the research if you want. I can quote the studies and point you guys at the right studies that do this. But really, if you're Catholic and you're listening to this and you know the confession chamber at church, it's the same principle. It's the same principle that of confessing something lets it go. Okay, but in our society, the fastest growing religion right now is no religion. So most of us living in a secular world don't have a way to ex- like we don't go to a confession chamber. And if you don't, then this is the practice. Okay, number two is I am grateful for. You probably don't need me to cite all the research on this. Writing down a few things that you're happy about makes you happy. You start priming your brain for positivity all day. You write down three or four specific things. My dog learned to shake a paw. My husband put the toilet seat down. You know, it's fish and chips night at at dinner, whatever it is. You just write down a few things that make you happy. You smile and you feel grateful for those things. And finally, I will focus on, and I've left three lines only in the journal for this. So I basically curate the list of million things I could do into three things I will do. So Dave, talking to you is one of my three things today. And I've only written down three things because that's all I can do in a given day. And But at least at the end of the day, I'm not thinking, oh, all I did was 230 emails. I actually can look back and ideally cross off three things I did every night. So many of these things are simple. And yet, if they're done consistently, so powerful. Like the gratitude. I've been doing that for a while now, a couple of years, once a week. I don't do it daily. I need to. It really does change mindset over time and uh, and and orientation to happiness. It's really powerful. Well, totally. And, and remember I said that the 200,000-year-old brain, 
the reason we were all trained to look for problems, find problems, and solve problems is because that's what we had to do. We had to look for saber-toothed tigers and run away from them. We had to look for shelter. We had to look for a mate before we died at age 30, right? So, so if you can start doing the gratitude practice, you actually start living now. Like you start living in the world of abundance that we are surrounded by and you start realizing like it is amazing that I can drive to a window and get a taco like or whatever it is that you're thankful for. Yeah. And it just it just makes you feel good. And you start training this archaic biological machine in our minds to be happy and that could be a lifetime of work. But it's a practice that is worth it because Maybe I should have started with this at the very beginning, Dave, but like when you show up at work with a positive mindset, and this is why I care about it, you are 31% more productive. You have 37% higher sales. You have three times more creativity than your peers. It's from a huge macro study done by Sonia Lubomirsky, published in Harvard Business Review and other places. So it's like if you show up to, ha- to work happy, it's the, it's the single biggest lever that affects how you do in your job. You're 40% more likely to get a promotion in the next 12 months. You live, according to a study from the University of Kentucky, an average of 10 years longer, partly why those people in Okinawa live longer than us. So like, it really is the secret weapon, and I, and I think of it like that. I think of it like a tool that you can wield and you can create for yourself. You've been teaching people about happiness for a while now and been writing and speaking on happiness. What's something that you believe to be true today, Neil, or maybe you've even changed your mind on in regards to happiness that you didn't believe a few years ago? My parents are immigrants. So my dad came from India. My mom came from East Africa, Kenya. And they filled my head with the basic model of happiness that most of us follow, which is that it's a six-word model. It goes great work, then there's a big arrow, and it says big success, and then there's a big arrow, and then it's be happy. If you do great work, then you'll have a big success, and then you'll be happy. And I grew up with this model in my head the whole time. If you study really hard, then you get straight A's. And if you're East Indian like me, you become a doctor, right? Mm. Or if you if you work really hard, then you get a promotion, then you're happy. But all the current research that I can find shows this model to be not just wrong, but literally the exact opposite of how it really works. So I casually threw out the phrase 15 minutes ago, be happy first. I now say that those six words are reversed. If you can be happy first, then there's a big arrow to great work, productivity, creativity, sales, everything goes up. And then if you can do great work, there's a big arrow to big success. So I actually now believe that happiness isn't something you're going towards. And then I was going towards it my whole life, right? Like I wanted to get the good grades so I could get into the great school. I was trying to do that so I could be happy. But instead now, if I wake up in the morning, do some of these practices we've been talking about, I can just... I can just coast through the day. You're awake a thousand minutes a day. That's a that's a normal stat for most people. So if you take two minutes in the morning, you make the other 998 minutes a piece of cake because you're already thinking positively, and that makes everything else happen. So the biggest thing I've changed my mind on is happiness is no longer the destination; it's the starting point. You know, I think I've said it on the show before. There's there's so much mediocrity out there in the world today, certainly in a lot of the corporations and organizations that many of us work in. And and that's just part of it. You know, we we are bought into a system that is is, is that reverse. And I I really love this book. I've been I've been uh, working on actually being happier myself. That's one of my goals for this year. And so your book came at the perfect time for me. And I've been reading it over the last week and it's really 
gotten me thinking in, in some practical ways. And I, I hope it's okay if I read a section of the book to everyone, because this piece of the book I really loved, and it's it's a section you called winning the lottery. <laughs> or, or, sure. or I, think, I think I'm getting close to that. And here's what you said. I love this. There are about 7 billion people on Earth today and 115 billion who have ever lived in the history of the world. That means that 108 billion people are dead. Most people have already lived their lives. Put another way, 14 out of every 15 people who have ever lived will never see another sunset again, have a bowl of chocolate ice cream, or kiss their kids goodnight. 14 of every 15 people will never stroll by the smell of their neighbor, neighbor barbecuing, flip to the cold side of the pillow before sleeping in on a Sunday, or blow out the flickering candles of a birthday cake in a dark kitchen surrounded by their closest friends. Being alive means you've already won the lottery. You are among the wealthiest people in the entire world. The average world income is $5,000. Are you higher than that? Then you're in the top 50%. And if you're higher than $50,000, you're in the top half percent. Do you need much more than 99.5% of people alive? You already have more than almost everyone on the planet. On your very worst days, you have to push your negative thoughts. You have to take a step back. You have to remember the lottery because you've already won. I love that. Thank you, Dave. And, and I, I have to remind myself of that just like I wrote. You know, it's a practice for me too, and it always will be. Oh, it's, it's fabulous. And I really uh, would encourage any of you out there that, like me, are finding that you know we get caught up in this world of materialism and uh, and and all the external things that our society tells us that we need to do, and I think you're going to find a lot of the practical wisdom in the happiness equation of really wonderful starting points. I encourage you to check that out, Neil. Thank you so much for taking the time to challenge us on our thinking and get us thinking about how we can be happier in our work and in our lives. Absolutely my pleasure, Dave. Thank you for all the hard work you're doing to put these types of conversations out there. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And I always say at the end of every podcast, if you made it till the end and you want to talk to me, just drop me a line, neil at globalhappiness.org. You know, CC Dave, tell us what you liked. And and I respond to everyone. It's really nice. It's kind of, I call it the end of the podcast club, whether you're on a dark road in the middle of the night or whatever. If you ever want to drop me a line, it'd be my pleasure to respond. Oh, great. I can't wait to be in part of several of those conversations. That's going to be fun. Thank you. For most of us, happiness is a choice. Taking Neil's advice and acting on one of the suggestions that he's made in this conversation is a super important starting point. Key difference for me in the past month has been Neil's be happy first principle that he details in the book and also the do it for you principle. I can tell you both have made a big difference already measurably on how I've been approaching a lot of things. That said, happiness isn't a choice for everyone. Depression is a disease that is real and that many in our society, and certainly some of you who listen to this show, are struggling with. If that's you, this episode might not help. I know that because I've been there. I struggled with depression many years ago, it's a disease that a lot of people, me included, have dealt with during a season in our lives. And for some people, it's a disease that is ever-present. If you've tried a lot of the things we've talked about on this episode and they haven't helped, find a professional that can help a lot more. Bonnie and I both strongly believe that good therapy is one of the best investments you can make, especially if you're dealing with something. We have both made that investment before. 
and most of you listening have the means and availability to hire professionals who can help. So if that's you right now, and you need just a bit of motivation to take that first step to get back on your feet, I hope you'll take my gentle nudge here to take that first step. I can assure you it is absolutely worth it to ask for help. Now, a few related episodes to today's conversation. If you go onto your free membership on the coachingforleaders.com website and look up the podcast library, if you click on the personal leadership topic, one of the episodes you're going to find there is episode 134, The Secret to Happiness. That is an episode I aired a while back uh, talking about one of the key distinctions that I found have been so helpful for me in being able to be a happier person. Also been helpful for many of the people I've worked with. Uh, If you are looking for another idea that will complement many of the things Neil and I talked about today, episode 134 is a great starting point. Also, uh, while you're in the podcast library there, one of the other buttons is the inspiration button. If you click on that one, you're going to pull up a bunch of episodes. One of them is episode 171, Five Ways to Avoid Living with Regret. Allison Clark was on that episode as my guest. She spent an entire year of her life going to funerals. Yes, going to 30 different funerals. She wrote a book about what is the difference maker about people who end their lives well based on her research. And she shared five of the key lessons she learned in that episode. It's a great episode to get you inspired to live the life you're meant to live. Another great compliment to today's conversation. Again, that's episode 171. And one of the other buttons you're going to find in the searchable topics in the podcast library is a button called Influence. If you click on that one, you're going to find a whole bunch of episodes. One of them is episode 245, How to Engage with Humor. David Nihil was on that episode. We talked about the importance of humor in utilizing it, not just in order to be happier, but uh, even more importantly, perhaps, of how to influence the world in an effective way. We talked about some key strategies for bringing humor into leadership, communication, writing, presenting, a lot of principles that I still use regularly. Check that out on episode 245. You can get access to all of those past episodes just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. And if you're wanting to get access to that full library with all of those topics uh, listed and searchable, just go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. You'll also get immediate access to my 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader that have been featured on the show over the last several years. Again, coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. Next week, Bonnie and I are going to be back to tackle questions on the monthly Q&A show. It's the first Monday of the month coming up. Boy, we've had a lot of questions coming in the last month. Wow. (laughs) Hope we can get to all of them. If you've sent in a question recently and you haven't heard yet, that's because it is in the pile. (laughs) So uh, watch for a bunch of questions coming next week. If you have a question you'd like to submit for either this show for consideration or for a future Q&A show, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback in order to do that. Hey, big thanks to Rick Beal out there. Thank you, Rick. And also Jean Valjean 24601. I love that username. Oh, Les Mis, one of my favorite musicals. Thank you to both of you for the kind reviews you left on iTunes. Hey, uh, I love reading those every week. Thank you to everyone who has left them. If you've been listening for a while and would love to review the show as well, coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes is where to go. Have a great week. See you next week. Back with Bonnie. Take care.